0: What's going on, Godspeak? Are we doing all right? Maybe. Some of us aren't. It's okay. <laughs> um, if I haven't met you guys, uh, my name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really excited to worship alongside you and study God's Word. Are you guys ready? You don't sound ready. Are you ready? Yeah, all right. This is God's Word. Raise your hand if you need a Bible. Raise them nice and high. Keith and Mark are here for you. You will need your Bible. You will. You will. You will absolutely need your Bible. I'd like you to stay in your Bible the whole time. And we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. If you guys will turn there. Hebrews chapter 6 in the New Testament. A little bit towards the end. All right. Hebrews chapter 6. So, we just got done with our uh, our series through the book of Jonah, where Pastor Mark took us through Jonah's life and, and all the faith and failure that had to do with Jonah's sad and sorry life, but he was used mightily. Um, kind of a metaphor for mine and Pastor Mark's life, just a series of undocumented failures and the only thing people see. <laughs> yeah, at least Jonah got a book. Oh, raise your hand if you need a Bible, and Ethan will get you a Bible. Look at Ethan. He is ready to hand... Somebody raise their hand for Ethan and give him a Bible. There we go. Ashley needs a Bible. Yeah! Thank you, Ethan. What a servant of God. Love it. Hebrews chapter 6. So we're endeavoring in in a new series, and we've titled this series Anchored. And and, uh, in this series, we're going to be going through uh, the book of Hebrews in, in different sections of the book of Hebrews. And essentially what it's going to be is that we are going to be going through the basic practices of the Christian faith. Uh, things that we have all been preached to, all, things that we have all learned, and things that we practice as Christians, but we might not understand the depth of it. And so we are going to be learning in things like, we're going to learn how to be anchored in, in the Word of God, anchored in devotion. We're going to be learning how to be anchored in prayer. We're going to be learning about the theology behind corporate worship. Why do we, why do we sing with a band? And, and why do we have all these words? And why do we raise our hands and things like that? What's the church? What's, what's the church community? And, and, and for some of you, it may sound like we're going to, we're going to be going through a pretty basic overview, but I, but I guarantee you, uh, for those of you that have been Christians for many years or for those of you that have been Christian for only a few years, you're going to learn something. And we're, tonight, we're going to be endeavoring through how to be anchored in salvation. And we're just going to be laying a foundation, essentially, for the rest of the series. Um, what is salvation? Why do we need it? Now, letting you guys know, as we'll learn next week, and this is really important that you guys come next week. Next week is going to be very important. We're going to be learning how to be anchored in devotion to our Word. Um, Pastor Mark and I are not the supplement uh, for your reading right, of the Scripture we, we, are, we are not the substitute for you learning in your personal walk with Jesus. And so there's going to be, I'm going to be talking about salvation tonight. Now, I can't go through all of it, man. Man, the, the depth of salvation runs so, so far, so deep that our, our minds will, will be existing for all of eternity. Our souls exist, as we're going to learn tonight, our souls are completely eternal. will never stop. And we will never, ever come to the conclusion of the depth of salvation. We're going to be learning that for the rest of our lives, for all of eternity. Just how spectacular Jesus is in his salvation. And so, so I just want to encourage you and let you know that um, we will be going through an overview of every, uh, all these pillars of the Christian faith and Christian practice. But I can't go through all of it. You've got to be in the word yourself, Right? Right? You've got to be teaching yourself. You've got to be endeavoring. You've got to be with fellowship of believers, learning together and building each other up. Amen? Amen. With that being said, Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. And we're going to start in verse 13. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. Now, we do something on Sunday mornings that uh, we have stopped practicing on Sunday nights. And I think it's just because Pastor Mark and I have been lazy. Um, but please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We're going to be standing as we read the word. Of the Lord. And we do this because we honor God's word, right? We honor God's word and we tolerate the preaching of it, right? Right? Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters in to the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Lord, we we are so grateful for your word and who you are, and God, we are excited to learn from you. So, Father, do something spectacular here, not because of any words that I may say or because we ourselves have some sort of elevated insight, God, but because your spirit has the ability to penetrate our hearts far deeper than we could ever go. And so, Lord, I just pray for a blessing over this time, God. May it be a worship to you. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. Have a seat. So, in the beginning, what? What? In the beginning, what? Come on. God created the heavens and the earth. This is like the only verse all of us have to know, right? <laughs> like, You know, I, I remember in, in, you know, in Sunday school, we'd have to, you know, read, have memory verses and then we get candy if we memorize verses. And so, you know, naturally that's the only verse like I would ever recite, you know, and, and I always got candy for it. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Man was created and walked with God. Now what happens next? Man was created, walked with God, had fellowship with God. What happens next? Man sins, right? Man sins. Man ate the apple, right? Man ate the apple. Now, the entirety of man's destiny was altered for the rest of eternity because a talking snake convinced Adam and Eve to eat an apple. That sounds pretty absurd, right? (laughs) <laughs> the entirety, like our entire destiny, humankind's destiny completely changed and altered because a talking snake convinced Adam and Eve, the first people to eat an apple, right? That's kind of, that's kind of the, that's kind of the laughing, you know, that, that's kind of the laughing stock of Christianity sometimes where it's like, are, do you really believe like, the, like all of man's destiny completely changed forever because someone ate an apple, Right? It sounds lame, right? Come on. You haven't thought that? You haven't thought, like, come on. Like, really? That's it? That's it? I have. I'm a pastor, so you guys can be real too, all right? But that wasn't it, right? That wasn't wasn't the the life-changing thing. The partaking of the fruit. In fact, God said, here, I have created everything. He said to Adam and Eve, I have created everything here for you. Everything that exists is for you. So we, we think that all right, mankind was made, and then all of a sudden, God gives them a rule. Hey, don't eat that, right? But it was actually the opposite, where God gives this command. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Everything here is yours. Everything. So, so the, really, the first command was not a command of restriction. The first command that God gave was, it was commission. It was go out, go enjoy yourselves. Go take part in the blessings that I have given you. Go and walk with me, have peace with me. I have created all of this so that you might enjoy it. And then he said, but, but don't partake in that. If you do, you'll surely die. Now, you see, God is love, as it says in 1 John. God is love. That is his character. God is a God that desires a love relationship with mutual giving and taking. That is the type of relationship that God desires. An outpour of his spirit coupled with an outflow of praise from our hearts. That's what God desires from from man. He desires a, a love relationship that he loves us pours upon us, gives us, gives to us, blesses us, adorns us with love and mercy and kindness. And he's continually pouring into us. And what he would like back is simply an outflow of praise back to himself, a love relationship. This is his desired relationship. Now, in order to have that type of relationship, in order for a truly love relationship to exist, choice must be a part of the equation. You cannot have a love relationship without choice. You can. It cannot exist. Without choice, it is impossible for any relationship to really exist, right? Two parties must choose to love one another. It's called covenant. That's a symbol of marriage, right? It is not some domineering, forceful thing. It is two parties that love each other deciding to be unified, deciding to walk with one another. That's covenant. That's the relationship we have with God in the garden. Two parties choosing to love one another. Now God, obviously, the stronger of the parties, is able to keep his promise. God made that promise when he created us. When he created man, he that, that was him declaring that. That he was going to love us and adorn us and bless us. This was the plan. Now, God chose to put choice into the equation. God chose to love man when he created them. And he's never ceased since. He's never stopped loving us. Man, however has continually chosen things that God has created for us over him himself. That was the root of the sin in the garden. The root of the sin in the garden was not, hmm, this looks good. Uh, oops, you know, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't it. It wasn't this, this accident where, you know, the Pandora's box was opened, right? It was, it was Satan saying, you know, you could, you could probably be like God. And so, so the sin the sin was, was to was desire the created things over the creator himself. This is ingrained now in our nature. It is ingrained in our nature to elevate the created things, the creatures, above the creator. That is ingrained in us. Perfect example, parents buy their kid an iPhone. Kid ignores their parents because they're too busy on their iPhone, right? You guys notice that dynamic, right? Parents buy their kid video game. Kid ignores parent because too busy with video game, right? And then parents are like, I don't know why he never pays attention to me. He's never like engaging at dinner or whatever. You gave him the box, right? You gave him that, right? You gave him that video game. That's, that's, that's kind of what's ingrained in our nature is to receive a gift and then elevate that gift above the gift giver. That is, that is what is, is ingrained in our nature as human beings as a result of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. That is what's ingrained in us. The sin was not eating the apple. It was the lie that Adam and Eve believed when they thought that they could be their own God. And this is a lie we buy into every day. Or at least myself. This is a lie I buy into. Our society is built around this entire premise that we can be our own gods, that you are the author of your own story, the former of your own destiny. That you are the forger uh, and the captain of your own journey in this life. The entire entire Western uh, Western mindset of transcendentalism is is totally ingrained in that. What is college for? (laughs) What is college for, guys, but but to forge a path that you believe is best for yourself? What are the 10-year plans for? But to how how to get ahead, How, how how can I get ahead in life? How can I plan ahead so I can get ahead, so I can build my kingdom? This is what's ingrained in us as human beings. Hollywood is bombarded with the messages of following our hearts in order to find what makes us most happy in life. These are the stories we buy into, the stories that we love. So we are brought up from the very beginning to seize the day for ourselves. Carpe diem. Take the bull by the horns. Forge your own path. This is the lie that we've continually bought into that we are God. We are God. In this passage, in Hebrews chapter 6, we are likened to voyagers. And all throughout scripture, we're, we're likened to voyagers on the sea. Seeking the shores of eternal bliss and happiness. This is our desire in life. We seek the ideal. We, we conjure up some image of what paradise looks like. And then we go for it. We try to create it. We try to seize it. Whatever it may look like. There's a best-selling book. It's called The Alchemist. Have any of you read The Alchemist? It's a, it's a very good book. And it, it, it's essentially... And it's it's one of the best-selling books, especially among our generation. One of the best-selling books because the entire premise is the universe will weave together everything that needs to work out in your life will work out. If your destiny is to do this, you go for it. Everything will work out for your own personal story, your own destiny. Now, we have taken this type of mindset, and we have actually weaved it into our Christianity. The fact that God serves, oh, all things work together for those that are loved by God and called according to his purpose. We use that sometimes as meant as, no matter what I do, God's going to make everything work out for my good. Right? We we buy into this sometimes, and there's a problem with that. There's a problem with thinking like this. And we find the solution and well we find the, the root of the problem in Colossians chapter one, verse sixteen. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. It says, By him, who is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. You see, as we seek to be the pioneers of this world, as we seek to be the pioneers of this world and navigate the seas of our own destiny, we run into unexpected storm. If we are voyagers in this world and we're seeking the eternal shores of bliss as we are traveling and as we are sailing and as we are trying to be pioneers, seeking treasure and and, and great riches. For some of you, it isn't money, but it's, it's marital bliss. For some of you, it's status. For some of you, it's simply being recognized by others. For some of you, it's a relationship that you haven't been able to attain but we have this idea in our heads of how we are to be voyagers and, and reach these eternal shores that we somehow just can't find. And, and in the midst of this traveling, in the midst of us trying to forge our own paths, we reach unexpected storms and trials. Waves, winds that we're unable to sail through, waves unable to traverse, life does not bend to our whim. We find out, right? How many of you guys have found out that pretty quick? Life just doesn't do what you tell it to. right? <laughs> for, some, for those of you that haven't found that out yet, God bless you. I'm praying for you. <laughs> But, you know, know, we we try to forge our own paths, and we try to create our own destinies, and we try to go where we believe we belong, and somewhere along the road, something happens. There's a roadblock. There's a storm. There's a trial. Something bad happens, and it just meant, like, why? Why, God? We shake our fists, and we're like, why, God, does this happen? Why do you allow these things to happen to me? Why? Why? It's because this world isn't ours. (laughs) So why would it bend to your will? If this world wasn't created for you or by you, then when you try to navigate it and try to make it bend to your own plan and will, then why are you surprised that it doesn't work? We have just as many self-help books as we do do support groups. (laughs) Have you noticed that? We have all these self-help books, 10 steps to get ahead, 10 steps to be successful in life, 10 steps to a great marriage, all of these things, right? We have all these things that are built up and written up for us, but then we have an equal amount of sobriety groups, right? AA meetings, Our, our, our society is full of this. It's this cycle that we live in of trying to get ahead and then reaching a roadblock and thinking that there's something wrong that we have to correct in order to make life bend to our will. The problem is why we keep running through these unexpected things. And they're surprising to us is because life, this world, wasn't created for us. It wasn't created by us. So naturally, it's not going to succumb to your will. Bad things happen. Bad things happen. but I love Ephesians chapter 2. If you want to turn there, you can. But Ephesians chapter 2. Keep your thumb in Hebrews chapter 6. We'll get there, I promise. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, it says, And you, you, who does you mean? You, yeah. <laughs> we read the Bible and we're like, Man, I wish so-and-so would hear this. We'd read this verse. What does you mean? You, right? (laughs) But you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our desires, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were once by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So, so here's what we're saying. Paul is saying right here that we, you, meaning all of us, were once children of wrath predisposed to to eternity without God because we have decided to be authors of our own stories. But God, it says in verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. God created us, and in doing that, promised that he would love us. That never ended. That never stopped. Ever since the beginning of the Garden of Eden, all the way up till now, God has continually showed, hey, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I desire you. We, though, have backed up. And this says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's original plan for us has never changed. Listen, before the foundations of the world, I want, I want you to know, before this entire earth was created, some people have a really hard time with this, live with it, okay? Before the foundation of the world, before the entirety of this cosmos, everything, before everything existed. God knew who you were, and wanted you. He knew everything. He wanted you. He wanted you, and he prepared for you good works that we might walk in them as his workmanship. In the Greek, that's poema, poem. You're God's poem. Workmanship doesn't mean you're you're this worker. You're this. You're this number on a conveyor belt. Through his poem. He has written out a beautiful life for you. This is how it was with Abraham. Now we go back to Hebrews chapter 6. That's how it was with Abraham. Abraham is often called the father of faith. He was the one chosen by God to start the nation of Israel. And eventually, through his bloodline, would, would be birthed the nation of Israel, and in that nation would be Jesus, the Messiah, right? Through Abraham's seed, through his tra- children, through who he was, and his family, and his bloodline, the Messiah would come and redeem the entire world. This was the promise that was made to Abraham, okay? We, we, have, to, we have to understand Abraham in order to understand the entirety of the Bible almost, right? We have to know who Abraham is. Abraham was chosen by God and by him. The entire nation of Israel was going to exist, right? Through his son having, uh, having another son and that son having 12 sons, right? And that 12 sons from Joseph going all the way to Egypt, expanding in the city of Egypt, and then Exodus from Egypt into the wilderness, being formed in the wilderness, and then going into Canaan. Establishing the nation of Israel, establishing the law, establishing a way of government, all to protect and preserve their way of life so that they wouldn't be overthrown by the surrounding countries. You ever, like, wonder why they have such weird laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers? You ever wonder why some of the laws are super creepy and weird? Right? It's because the pagan nations around them were so brutal and so crazy. That they had to have this closed system of a little, some strict and crazy rules so that they could be preserved. Because nations went like that back then, right? Nations would rise and fall in like 10 years, right? So they had to have this law. They had to to be super preserved and be really weird and awkward nation, right? They had to be that way so that the Messiah could be born in that nation and then redeemed world this was all going to happen through abraham's bloodline through abraham's bloodline god promised these things to abraham god promised that this would happen and it says in verse 13 of hebrews chapter 6 verse 13 everyone go hebrews chapter 6 verse 13 for when god made a promise to abraham since he had no one greater by whom to swear he swore by himself Saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. So that that was God's promise to Abraham. Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Verse 15. Everyone look at it. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. It says, thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Does anyone know what's funny about that? Anyone who know their Bible know what's funny about the fact that Abraham patiently waited? Yeah, he... guys he didn't wait patiently. (laughs) It says that Abraham having patiently waited for the promise to be fulfilled. Here's the thing. God said, Abraham, you and your wife, Sarah, you are the chosen couple, right? And through your bloodline, I will establish a nation. And so Abraham's like, yeah. And Sarah's like, yeah. And they wait until like Sarah's like 60. (laughs) And they're like, all right. Okay, no child yet, right? And, and, so, and so what's eventually happening is that Abraham, he's getting anxious. He's like, God promised us a, a kid. Abraham ain't, I mean, uh, Sarah ain't getting any younger. I mean, she's still beautiful and everything. But like, man, like her, her good years are pretty much up, right? So, so there, you know, and Sarah knows this too. And Sarah's getting impatient. And so Sarah has this great idea. Sarah says, Abraham. This ain't happening, right? Why don't you take my maid, Hagar, and you two can have a baby together, right? Is this what God said? No, God didn't say that. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) (laughs) And so, and so Abraham is like, great idea, Sarah. You know, like that, that saying that the wife is always right, the wife is not Always, right? Usually, but not always. Like in this case, Sarah is like, hey, sleep with my maid, right? And Abraham's like, for sure. (laughs) I'll do that. I'll do that. And he did. And out from that came Ishmael. And that mistake, that single mistake, was the worst, one of the worst mistakes that has ever happened in human history. Out of that mistake, you have the modern-day Israeli-Palestinian conflict that plagues our nation today too, right? So, we can say that Abraham didn't necessarily patiently wait, but do you know what? After that, Abraham waited 20 more years. 20 years. He's over 100. Sarah's basically almost 100. 20 years they waited. And out came their beautiful son, Isaac. Abraham wasn't patient. He screwed up. He screwed up. And after that whole debacle, he had to wait 20 years. Guys, patience is developed. Patience is developed. All of it, like we pray, God, grant me patience now, right? <laughs> but patience is developed. Abraham learned. And after he made that mistake, he patiently waited. He patiently waited for almost 20 years for Isaac to be born. He had developed patience by failing and then trusting God. God. Abraham, though, cannot conjure up some blessing for himself. He had to wait upon the Lord. And listen, guys, even when we are extremely patient and trying to do our best towards the ideal life as Abraham was, we screw up. We mess up. We can be doing our very best to reach these eternal shores. We can be doing our very best to try to reach this, this bliss that we're seeking and this ideal that we have in our heads. But, but the reality is, in our, patient, in our patience and in our steadfastness, and no matter how hard we work, we will fail. It's not a matter of if we fail, it's a matter of when we fail. That's why it says here in verse 16 through 18. In Hebrews chapter 6, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hopes set before us. God says, I know that no matter how pure your intentions may be, you cannot save yourself from the storms you've gotten yourself into. That's why he doesn't say, hey, 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 listen, I promise to save you if you promise to never do anything bad again. Right? God doesn't say, hey, I'll forgive you. But listen, mess up again. No more forgiveness, right? We have conditional forgiveness all the time. If you do this again, it's over, right? God doesn't doesn't work that way. Why? Because he knows. He knows our fallen nature. He knows that no matter how hard we try and no matter how much sanctification comes up until we reach those eternal shores, until we finally meet God face to face, We are but broken mirrors trying to reflect God's glory. And that's why I love Psalm 103, verse 13. This needs to be one of your guys' life verses. I know there's someone in here like, this is your life verse. I love this verse. It it encourages me so much. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. He knows your dirt. He formed you out of dirt. He knows your dirt, right? There was this um, priest who was saying the prayer in this, um, during Mass, and there's a little kid sitting with his mom in the pew, and, um, and, the, and the priest, he, he prayed. He said, Lord, help us remember where we came from. Help us realize that we are but dust. And the kid turns to his mom and says, Mom, what's butt dust? (laughs) Uh (laughs) Guys, we we are butt dust. (laughs) We're just dust, man. We, in and of ourselves have created this pattern of wickedness. It's ingrained in human nature after thousands and thousands of years of pursuing things other than God. We have strayed from the harbors of paradise and we can't attain that joyful life we desire by our own merit. We can't. We cannot do it. Sooner or later, we will screw up and that is okay. Because God's promises are not our promises. Some of you guys have lived with broken promise after broken promise after broken promise. Whether it be from your parents, whether it be from a spouse. You guys have lived with a continual state of broken promises. I love you. No actions to back that up. I'll stay with you. No actions to back that up. You guys have lived with continual broken promises. And so it's really hard to trust God, but it says right here. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise of the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, but an oath wasn't good enough. He said so that by two unchangeable things, it is impossible for God to lie. He swore, but he didn't just swear. He swore by his name and by his word. And it says in Psalm 138 that he holds his word above his name. He cannot lie. It's impossible. It's impossible for God to lie. It's outside of his nature. In John, Christ was referred to as the word. God's word is the means by which he accomplishes things. You know, like let there be light. And what happened? Light, right? Right. Anything God says occurs. Anything God speaks happens. And so when God makes a promise, it becomes reality. It is impossible for God to lie because by his word, things happen. And that's hard for some of us to believe. But I'll tell you something. There's no other book in this world that you can read over and over and over and over and over again and get something different every single time. I read a lot, guys. I'm in a different book each month, and I'll tell you, I can read a book and then read it again and learn the same exact thing again, right? But no matter how many times you read this, you can get something different every time if you seek God in his word. It's living and active. That means what God declares in here, what did not only apply thousands of years ago, but applies here today as well. When God says something, it becomes reality, not only in the past, but in the present. It's impossible for God to lie. And he promises that he'll bless you, and he promises that he'll he'll save you. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it says that God has put eternity into man's heart. We have this ingrained desire for heaven. We as men, we have, this, we, 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 we have this ingrained desire for heaven. Doubt me all you want, but some people call it the pursuit of happiness. Some people call it finding your destiny. Some people call it happily ever after. J.R.R. R. Tolkien, the uh, the author of Lord of the Rings, he 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 said that stories. There's a there's a common there's a common theme amongst all stories that people write. It is people in desperate need of saving, and a hero coming in to save the day, and people being liberated. Because in our hearts we scream for saving, we scream for a savior. The things that we create, the stories that we create, they and, and the thing, the sayings that we come up with, it, they scream for our desire for bliss, for heaven, for unity with God once again. All things are just broken ways to describe our desire for unity, for the Garden of Eden again. In our pursuits, we end up straying away from God. Why? In our pursuits for pursuit of happiness, the happily ever after, finding your destiny, finding your story, where you fit in in this world, what's your calling. In the midst of that, we tend to stray away from God because we still buy into the lie that you can be God. You can be God. Call it whatever you want. Call it following your dreams. You can be God. We find out pretty quick that we aren't God. Because storms rage. It seems like we are doomed to a life of vanity. No future but to exist apart from God. You know what? That's what hell is. Oh, yeah, I'm going to talk about hell. Dang it. Almost got through it. Man, dang. That's what hell is, guys. Think about everything good. Every good gift from God. Hell is without God. So, so call it whatever you, whatever you want, call it punishment, call it something made up to, to scare other people. But the reality of it is the Bible says if you don't want God, you're not going to get God. So why would you get the good things that he allows you to have here? So, so if you deny God, you're denying all the things that, good, that come with him, right? Thus, hell is there. It's not a matter of like God trying to scare you to be with him, scare you to go into heaven. He's saying, you don't want me, you don't, you don't get me. And that's all the good that comes along with me too. Our souls wander, storing up wrath. Because God can't let sin go unpunished. That would make him an unjust and unholy God, right? It, you know, if we, if we come in and we've lived this life of rebellion against him, we go, hey, but God, you're a nice guy. Can you let me in? He's like, I, I am kind and I am long suffering. But what kind of God would I be if I allow myself to be unified with Dirtiness, unholiness. If I allow you to come in, where's the justice? Right? God's not a just God if he just lets anybody in, right? So listen, guys. Our souls wander, storms occur, storms happen. It says in verse 18, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Listen to this. I want you to listen. This is really important. This is a metaphor that a lot of people have missed The wind and waves are all super powerful, right? And I'm, ta- I'm not talking about metaphorically. I'm talking about actual wind, actual waves in the ocean. We live on the West Coast, so it's not as bad here, right? But winds, waves, they're intense, especially in Israel. In Israel, storms get life-threatening. And you learn, even, even as a surfer, you know, you can learn to kind of respect the power that lies in the ocean. There's an extreme amount of power that lies in the seas, You've got to learn to respect it. It's greater than we are, right? It's greater than we are. And especially near Israel, the storms would get really, really, really intense. There would be winds that would come in from all angles that would cause incredible waves that were life-threatening. Storms so intense that all boats that were coming into the harbor would not get to the shore because their sails were so big that they would just take them away. So you have all these boats in Israel that are, that are trying to reach the harbors. They're trying to reach the harbor. They're trying to reach the shoreline. But the storms and the waves and the winds are so incredibly strong and their sails so big that they can't get there. They're not, they, they are prohibited. They, they, they are unable to reach their shores. And on the shores of this harbor, guys, and listen to this. This is really cool. On the shores of this harbor... All along the shoreline, there's these huge rocks, huge rocks that were taller than people. And then they had these, these hooks, these divots in them. And what would happen is when the huge ships would try to go to the shore, they were unable to do so because of the wind and the waves, the boats couldn't get to the anchors. They couldn't get to these huge rocks to latch onto the shore. So, with, because they had their huge sail, since they couldn't get there themselves, they would send a smaller boat called a forerunner. A smaller boat called a forerunner, where, where just a couple of men rowing on the boat would, would, would just endure the waves and endure the crashing of the wind, would endure everything. They would endure being capsized. They would would endure the waves crashing on top of them. They would endure the piercing and the cold winds. they'd row and they'd row for yards and yards. And they would have a rope attached to them that was uh, attached to the boats. And they'd finally make it to shore. And they'd latch the ropes. They would latch the chains onto the big anchors that lied on shore. And that's when the big boats with all their crew would then pull themselves. They'd pull themselves to shore. As long as they were holding on to the anchor, they were okay. This is the hope that is set before us. It says that there's a hope set before us. It is in front of us. Your salvation, guys. Do you, do you see the metaphor there? We, we as voyagers in this world, we endure storms, we cannot get to the paradise on our own, we are unable to traverse, we are unable to reach it. And so Jesus, as a forerunner, endures the waves and the storms for us, latches us on to the anchor of the internal shores of who God is in fellowship and unity with him. And then we are able, as long as we hold on to the rope that the forerunner has provided for us, we are anchored and safe. That's salvation. That Jesus Christ, him who knew no sin, became sin that you might be saved. That he is the one who endured the, the trials and the waves. He endured every type of temptation so that he might endure, endure the suffering and latch you onto the anchor of unity with God. And our salvation, guys, our salvation is not dependent on how hard you can paddle. It is not dependent on how big your boat is or on your sailing skills, on how, how well you know the waves that you're in. Your salvation is dependent on how tightly you hold on to Jesus, the forerunner. Are you clinging to the rope that the forerunner has set before you? Jesus was able to enter into the holy of holies. He was able to enter into the presence of God because he was sinless, pure. He's God. He decided as God to humble himself, come from heaven, humble himself, live a life amongst the dirtiness of this world and endure everything. He endured the entirety of God's wrath that was poured upon him. And that was him acting as a forerunner, going and enduring the pain for you. Holding the rope and latching it onto the anchor. He's our interceder. Guys, before, before in the Old Testament, there was in the temple, there was this huge veil. And inside that veil was, was the, the presence of God. That's where God dwelt. And priests could only enter it through a, a series of, uh, of, of incredible rituals in order to purify themselves. But only the priests could enter. The, the, the common people, they, they couldn't enter in. And when Jesus hung there on the cross when he was beaten, when he was bruised, when the beard was ripped out of his face, when he was scourged to an unrecognizable frame, and in that point, in in, in enduring pain on the cross, God put the entirety of his wrath on Jesus. Everything bad you have ever done, past, present, future, everything that you have done to, to stray away in seeking to be your own God, everything that you have done, that God has a right to punish you for because it's his world, not yours. He has a right to punish you. He didn't. He put it on Jesus. And it says that when he hung on the cross and when he died, it says that the veil in the temple was torn straight in half. It says that this thing was almost three feet thick. Like not like in width, like thickness. Thickness. That's how, that's, how, that's how thick this veil was. And it tore right in half. It tore right in half to symbolize the fact that now anyone can enter into the presence of God. If they simply cling to what Christ has done for them on the cross, they can enter into the Holy of Holies. In fact, it says that now you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so being anchored in salvation, guys, being anchored in salvation, it's not a matter of rituals. It's not a matter of what, how many times you go to church. It's not a matter of how well you navigate your own destiny. Salvation is solely dependent on do I cling to Jesus? Do I latch on to him? Am I devoted to him? Have I given my life to him? His body was broken and his blood was shed for you. That's why we take that's why we take communion, that's why we do all of these things. It's it's to remember that. A hope that enters in to a place beyond the curtain. Salvation means to be delivered, protected, and loved in perfect unity with Jesus Christ. And so, guys. Being saved, the salvation that we have. I I think sometimes we 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 trick ourselves. I think we I think what what we usually chop our, our our Christianity up to is moral deism. Meaning I believe in God and I try my best to be a good person. It doesn't work. God doesn't need you to affirm his existence, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, God, God's like, oh, if only they believed I exist. Oh, they believe I exist. Okay, for sure. You know? He, he, he's not waiting for you to acknowledge his existence. He's waiting for you to have a relationship with him. He's not waiting for you to be a good person. He's waiting for you to be the person that he's created you to be, without all the sin and the junk. And so I'm going to close here and I'll invite the worship team to come back up and we're going to take communion here. And guys, communion is essentially this. Communion is God's body right here, symbolized by the bread. Jesus' body was broken because there needed to be a sacrifice, right? That perfect life, that perfect life that he lived. Guys, The body that was broken for you, broken for you, scorched for you, beaten for you, crucified for you. We take part in that now because God God has not only said, not only does he say, I I don't only forgive you, but I bring you into a part of my body, who I am. I have saved you, I've been beaten, I've been punished for you so that you don't have to. Now I bring you into the greater body of who I am. I have adopted you. The perfect life that I live is now added on to you. And then, and then we take the juice that symbolizes the blood that was shed for us. The perfect blood that was shed. It was that covenant blood. He was pure. He was a pur- pure and spotless sacrifice. And when we identify with who Christ is, When we declare that Christ is the only sacrifice that has taken away our sins, when we say that God not only died for my sins, but he rose again on the third day, proving that death has no power over him. When we take that, we say that I want Jesus's life to now take place of my life. I want Jesus's life to take place of my life. I want to identify with the blood that has been shed. I I recognize that I'm covered with his blood. I'm covered with his purity in his life. And so we take it in remembrance of him, and we take it together as a church so that we can identify with his body as his church body. We can identify, and we can be covered by his blood, the covenant. When When he said to his disciples, take and drink of this, this is my covenant, take and drink. He meant, "Will you be in a relationship with me? Will you be in that restored relationship that I have given you?" And so, guys, uh, we've we talked about salvation, and salvation is, is simply this. If I were to give you a super, super simple version of it, it's recognizing that God is the author of this world. He is created for Himself. And he's created you and loved you. And despite his love for you, you've strayed away and tried to be your own God. And when Christ died for you and rose again, you're simply saying, I want to be a part of Christ's life. He's the forerunner. He's the only way I am ever going to get to heaven. He's the only way I'm ever going to have unity with God. And by having a relationship with him, by asking him to save me, By declaring him to be king and him to be Lord. I will take part in his life and I will die to myself and I will live to him. And so I'm not going to do an altar call. I'm not going to ask you to close your eyes and raise your hand. If you want to receive Christ tonight. Whether it be for the first time or for the hundredth time. If you want to receive Christ tonight. Take communion. Identify with Christ's life. Ask him to save you. And if you want to know what that means, what it means to be saved, what it means to be redeemed, I'm going to be right over there to pray. Pastor Brett, I'm going to ask him to be right up there to pray with us. If you want to receive Christ, we'll be right there to talk you through it, to pray you through it. And for the rest of us, Let's stop defining ourselves based on what we do and based on how good of people we can be or based on how many times we can get to church. Instead, in the midst of all the storms that we go through in life and all the troubles that we go through, let's hold on to the forerunner, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? Lord, we, we love you, God, and I just pray that you would, you would penetrate our hearts tonight. Lord, that you would do a mighty work in us, that we would be continually reminded of your, your wondrous salvation. God, I'm, I, I just I want to rededicate my life to you every day. I feel like being saved is, yeah, it's a one-time deal when I, when I accept you into my heart, but Lord, I need to be saved every day. <laughs> I, I need to repent every day. I need, to, I need your strength every day. And so, Father, I just, I just pray that we would declare how great you are as the forerunner on our behalf, as the creator of this world, and that we'd surrender being the authors of our own stories. We would surrender trying to write, God, our lives. And we would submit to you and what you want and your will. I love what it says in James 4. We should say that if God wills, we will live and we will do this or that, meaning... We live every day asking you what you want. Because you're the one that's allowed us to live another day. And Scott, God, we worship you and we praise you tonight. In awe of your salvation and your saving power. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.